All right, take your Bibles and join me in Genesis 45. Genesis 45, as you can see, Lord willing, only a few more chapters. Hope you've enjoyed our study uh, this way through the book of Genesis, chapter at a time, Kevin and I alternating. Um, Hopefully that's helped you to maybe get a little different perspective on the chapters and the flow, the progress. We've, We've tried to tie in with each other, but same time, you know, we're each gifted to teach, maybe in a little different way, so maybe that's opened some things up for you. I hope you've been reading uh, on your own uh, through the book of Genesis, and um, I trust that you're seeing the glory of God and that it's leading you to Christ, even in the very first book of Scripture. Genesis 45, when you found it, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer and um, again pray and ask for the same thing that we just sung to God. Father, thank you for bringing us here this morning. Thank you for the privilege of another Lord's Day. Thank you for the gift of your word and the revelation of yourself to us in it. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit who lives in each of your uh, chosen ones, redeemed ones. And we know because of those two gifts, there is all the potential in the world for us to see things today that aren't normal, things that are supernatural things that will conform us to the image of your son, things that will give us a bigger view of you than we've ever had before, things that can change the way we live our life because the way we look at life can be changed. And that's my prayer this morning. Father, I pray that you'll use this chapter and what you were doing through Joseph and his brothers and Jacob, that through what we see this morning, the the thinking that goes on in our mind, I pray that you will increase our perspective on you, our view of you, our appreciation of you, not just our comprehension, but our appreciation. We, we, want, we want to see you in a way that makes us look at you all the time, makes us look for you all the time, and then controls what we do because we're looking at you. That's what we want. So, Father, I pray that your spirit will use your word to that end this morning. Father, I pray for those who are not able to be with us this morning. We miss them. We wish they were here. There's nothing like being together with your people and worshiping together and learning together. But, Father, those who are not able to be with us this morning, I pray that you will minister in their hearts. Uh, even Even as we're studying the word together here right now, I pray that you give them thoughts uh, about you and your son. I pray that their emotions will rise with the truth as they're thinking about you and your son, and that they can even worship wherever they are this morning. Father, lastly, use me. Uh, I only want to rightly divide the word of truth. I want to cut straight down the line. I don't want to wander off the path that you've given us in your word. Uh, So, Father, I pray that you will control me, fill me with your spirit, so that my words are your words, so that these folks hear only from you this morning, not from a man. And I pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when we come to Genesis chapter 45, the seven years of plenty are history at this point in time. They're done. At this point in time, we are now a couple of years into that time of famine, that famine which has fallen on, as the word says, all the lands, all the nations, the entire earth. This is not just a localized famine in Egypt and and Canaan. This is a famine that covered all the earth at that point in time. So now there's nothing growing. No one is harvesting. 
And by this point, they're starting to run out of all personal reserves they may have put back through the the good years that have come before this. Joseph, by this point in time, has now carried out his plan that he presented to Pharaoh. He's carried out that plan. He has stored up massive amounts of grain inside of Egypt. So people from Egypt and people from lands surrounding Egypt were coming to Egypt, coming to Joseph, to buy what they needed. They can't grow what they need now, so they're coming to Egypt to buy what they need through or from Joseph. Joseph's brothers have come now also. They have come from Canaan down to Egypt, not just once, but you'll remember they've come twice now. They've met Joseph twice now by this point in time, but they still don't recognize him. Remember, they even had dinner with him in his own house. You remember that? Where he, he, he seated them in their birth order. You wonder what they were thinking as, as they, were, they were shown to their seats and it was in their birth order. What were they thinking about that? When Joseph that night served them himself. Here's this Egyptian official leaving his table with his food and coming over and serving them himself. And he, and he gave Benjamin five times more than he gave anybody else that night. That was quite the unexpected party. I'm sure they, they, they had no idea that something like that was going to happen, and it seems like it was a, a very good night for them, but they still didn't recognize Joseph. The next day, remember what he did? He set them up once again by hiding his own personal cup in Benjamin's sack and then sent his servant to overtake them and arrest them for, for stealing his silver cup. So now they're back in front of Joseph once again, this time not just being accused of being spies, Now they're being accused of being thieves. And what was Joseph's sentence? Well, the one who stole the cup, he's going to be my slave. Benjamin is going to stay here and be my slave. The rest of you can go back home to your daddy. This was Joseph's sentence to all of these brothers. So that's when Judah stepped up. On behalf of the rest of the brothers, Judah stepped up to plead with this Egyptian official. Again, not knowing that this is Joseph, he's just pleading on behalf of his brothers with this Egyptian official. And as we listen to it, and as Kevin brought out last week, it's very interesting that Judah wasn't pleading for Benjamin. You would expect him to do that, right? But, but he wasn't really. He wasn't even pleading for the rest of them, the other 10 brothers. Oh, you know, we don't want to go back home without Benjamin and our lives will be miserable. So maybe he would be pleading for them. No, that wasn't it either. Judah was actually pleading for their father, Jacob. And you remember, he had told Joseph how much it had taken to get their father to to let them bring Benjamin down to Egypt with them. He told Joseph how this, this, this one, this son, this Benjamin, is the only child left from their father's true love, Rachel. Remember, uh, Joseph and Benjamin, only kids from Rachel, right? And so he had told Joseph about this, about his father. Benjamin's special. He's the only child left. The other one, the other one is no more. He, he, he was killed. He, he, he's long gone. And he's expressed this to Joseph at this point in time. And he's expressed how much the loss of the other son by Rachel, Joseph, how much the loss of that son just about did in Jacob, their father. And if he loses this son too, not just Joseph, but if he loses Benjamin too, it will kill him. And Judah is letting Joseph know, this Egyptian official, I can't bear that. I can't go back home without this other son and watch my father die for the loss of his second son. So Judah begged Joseph 
to keep him as the slave. Not Benjamin. Keep me. I'll stay here. I'll be your slave until I die. Just let Benjamin go back home for the sake of our father. And this is where we left off last week. Now, through all this back and forth between Joseph and his brothers, we've gotten a little bit of a peek into the minds of the brothers. We've been able to see a little bit of what they've been thinking through all of this back and forth with this Egyptian official. It is obvious, it has been obvious, I hope you've seen this, that they have not forgotten what they did to Joseph. As much as they probably wanted to, and as much as they didn't want anybody else to know what they had done, it it has been obvious to me that they haven't forgotten what they did to him, and they carry some guilt over it. There, There is some shame. There is some recognition of we should not have done that. And with the guilt comes a certain measure of fear. That's been there. We've seen that. We've even heard it from their own mouths before this. Now, they don't understand exactly what is happening with this Egyptian official. Why why is he treating us this way? Why is this happening? Each time we go to Egypt, why does something off the wall happen to us? They don't get that. They don't understand that. But they are convinced that God is behind it. They've said with their own mouths when they thought they were in private that this is probably God punishing us. We haven't forgotten what we did to our brother. We shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. God knows. And God is just using this Egyptian official to punish us. He's he's paying us back through this Egyptian official. Again, they've talked about this secretly as things have been going on. And if Judah is speaking for all the brothers back there in chapter 44, we're also seeing a certain measure of loyalty to dad. There is a There's a compassion there. There's a tenderness from the sons to their father so that they're willing to do just about anything at this point in time to protect their father from harm, from from hurt. And I have to think maybe there's a connection with their guilt there, right? They feel guilty for the way they've already hurt their father, and they don't want to do anything or be involved in anything that brings even more hurt to their father. So I think there's a, a direct connection there. We understand a little bit of what what the brothers are thinking. But what about Joseph? I mean, what has he been thinking through all of this? What's been going through his mind? Well, unlike them, he does know who they are, right? First time he laid on eyes on them, he recognized them right off the bat. And so we would start to speculate about what he's thinking from the get-go. There's my brothers. How do the wheels start to turn? Well, one thing that is very obvious here is that he still cares about them right? How do we know that? Because of the way he's been caring for them. Remember, they've come twice. Twice now he has loaded their sacks with grain for free. Put their money back in the sacks, didn't charge them, gave them their money back, all the grain they came for. So here's Joseph demonstrating by his actions that he still cares about these brothers. This is not just for dad back home and all of their children back home. This is going to take care of the brothers and all that they own as well. But why all the secrecy? Why all the back and forth? Why why the setups? You know, Joseph keeps setting these guys up to to accuse them of something and make them look bad. Why, Why does he keep doing that? Why all the false accusations? You're spies. You're spies. You're thieves. You stole my cup. Why all these false accusations? What is Joseph up to? Is Joseph trying to punish them for what they did way back when? 22 years ago, he hasn't forgotten about this. And when he first saw him, did he think, I got you now. 
Now it's my turn. I've been waiting for all these years. Now you're going to get it. Is that what he's up to here? And if so, why not just throw all of them into prison, except for Benjamin, or kill all of them, except for Benjamin? He could do that. He has the authority in Egypt that he could probably do that. Is Joseph getting some, some kind of sick satisfaction out of watching them squirm? I mean, he can see the fear. He, he can hear them speaking in Hebrew when, when they think this Egyptian guy can't understand us. He's listening. He understands what they're saying when they say, God's punishing us. We, we did wrong, and now God's paying us back. Is, is Joseph enjoying this privately? And just, I'm going to push it further and further. I want them to squirm as long as I possibly can make it happen. Is that what's going on in his mind? Is he enjoying lording his authority over them? And what is his plan? Is, is he just going to keep messing with them indefinitely? He doesn't have an end game here. It's just to make them miserable as long as he possibly can. Is that what he's thinking? What is he really after? What is he trying to do to them? Or what is he trying to get from them? Is he just waiting until they finally come out with it and confess it to him? Is that what he's, what he's looking for? Is he ever going to reveal himself to them? I mean, how long is he going to keep this dance up with his brothers? Well, we finally start to get some answers to some of those questions in chapter 45. Kevin's been teasing it for weeks now. He's been so miserable. He, 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 he had to give all the questions and couldn't give all the, any of the answers. So it's been a hard two or three weeks for Kevin. I get the fun part. We get answers. We start to get answers here. And, and I want to walk you through the events of chapter 45, kind of like we're at a play and we've got acts in this place. So you're going to see an act, and you're going to move on to another act. And with each act, the, the title, the subject will change a little bit. But, but I think it'll help us to organize our thoughts as we go through this. So starting with the first act, and we're looking here at verses 1 through 4. And I'm just calling this the big reveal, okay? So look at verses 1 through 4. Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, make everyone go out from me. So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Does my father still live? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near to me. So they came near. Then he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. All right, so there's the big reveal. We've been waiting for this, right? Chapter after chapter. Come on, Joseph, just tell them who you are. Stop, stop messing with them. Come out with it. Well, here it is. He just came out with it. And what we see is Joseph had been restraining himself. I don't know how long. I, you know, when did, he, when did he start thinking, oh, I want to tell them, but I'm not going to. When did the emotions start to build? He's been restraining himself. He has been full of emotions, but he hadn't shown it prior to this. You remember, when he had them over to his house for dinner that one night, and he, and he met Benjamin. He had seen him when they first came back to Egypt, but when he was face-to-face -face with Benjamin, he got so overwhelmed with emotion that time that he had to run off to his bedroom and cry there so no one would see him or hear him, Okay. But he didn't show that emotion that time, not outwardly, not, not publicly, and he didn't reveal himself to them that time at dinner. But now, while he's listening to his brother Judah pleading for compassion, not for Benjamin, not for the ten of them, but for their father Jacob, 
Joseph's father, Jacob. When he's hearing how much Jacob had grieved over Joseph's loss and how worried he was for Benjamin, Joseph couldn't restrain himself any longer, could he? He let it all out. Here he let out all the emotion that he had been holding back. Here he let out the truth that he had been holding back too. And that emotion was so strong that the Egyptians heard it from outside the room. In, in another, they weren't in that room with Joseph and the brothers at that point in time. He had put them out. So at least they were in another room, maybe behind closed doors, behind walls. And the emotion came out so strongly that they could even hear it where they were. And you think, you know, why had he sent everybody else out of the room except for his brothers? Well, you know, if you are lord over all Egypt, if you're second in command over all Egypt, right behind the king, then you're going to try to protect your reputation a little bit, I would think, right? You don't want to lose it in front of all of your servants. You don't want to show weakness, do you? You don't want to show a lack of composure when you are the man. You're on the the second rung from the top. You don't want to show all of this emotion to them, right? But he couldn't keep them from hearing it, even from a distance. Here you find Joseph had so many thoughts and feelings and desires that had been dammed up for so long for him, and now the floodgates opened up. Here you've got over 20 years of sadness and happiness, over 20 years of pain and joy, and they rushed out like a wave when he said, I am Joseph. I'd love to have heard him say, how did he say it? Did he practice it? Did he get in front of the mirror? And I, I don't know. When he said it, all the emotion came with it. And that announcement, that truth was so shocking that his brothers didn't know what to do with it. Did you hear in verse 3, when he asks if his father is still alive, they can't even respond to him. They're, they're speechless. Words cannot come out of their mouths. But strangely, why did he ask that question? Is my father still alive? Judah has just been telling him how if they go home without Benjamin, it's going to kill our father. Judah has already been saying, dad is alive. So why is Joseph here asking, is my father still alive? Well, you remember who these 10 guys are? I mean, is it far-fetched to you to think Joseph might still be a little skeptical of these guys? Maybe Judah, maybe dad's already dead, but Judah is talking as if he's alive to play on the emotions of this Egyptian official and try to get some mercy, try to get our sentence lessened a little bit, try to get our brother let go. I mean, would that be too much to think? Would Judah and the brothers deceive like that? Yeah, they certainly would, given their past, but they couldn't even answer. I mean, when he asked that question, they couldn't even come out with an answer because, as the New King James says, they were dismayed at Joseph's revelation. Dismayed. I mean, you think about it. Even though they hadn't killed him, they had written Joseph off long ago as if he was dead and gone, hadn't they? I mean, the last 20 years have been lived as if this this guy's dead. I mean, they presented it that way to their father, and that's the way it was presented in their community, the rest of their family and their community, obviously. And so Joseph had been as good as dead for over the last 20 years. Now these brothers are not only hearing that he's alive, they're hearing it from him. And they're seeing him. I am Joseph. This Egyptian official is him. 
And you, you got to try to imagine, put yourself in their sandals and try to imagine what's running through their mind at this point in time. I mean, there are thoughts going on, there are feelings, there are questions, there are fears that are overwhelming them so much that they can't even process them fast enough to, to respond with words to Joseph. And Joseph must have seen that they were struggling to believe him, right? I mean, did you pick up on that? I mean, he offered some evidence. Look back at verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery. Joseph can see maybe they need a little more evidence. Come closer. From a distance, in all of my Egyptian garb, with all of my makeup, Looking like, a, 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 looking like royalty in front of you, maybe you can't see it from a distance, but come close, look behind it, you'll see me. You'll recognize the 17-year-old that you sold away so many years ago. Come closer and look. And if that wasn't enough, what else did he say? He told them something that only Joseph would know, right? Who else knew that they had sold Joseph into slavery? Only Joseph. And so there it is, Right? their greatest fear. They hadn't told that to anybody else. But now here it is. Their terrible crime is now, it's out in the open. There's no more hiding it. And suddenly, they have to face what they did to Joseph. And not only face it, they've got to face him, right? What a scene. What an amazing revelation. Which then leads us to act number two. See, we're moving quickly. Verses five through eight. Look there, if you will. This is act number two the real story. What, what happened? What really happened? Well, verse 5, Joseph says to them, but now do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For these two years the famine has been in the land, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all of his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. The real story. So Joseph can see that the weight of all this sudden news is just about to crush his brothers. He can, he can see there, there is overwhelming guilt Within them, he can see their anger at themselves. I think he can probably spot some anger at each other. <clears throat> Maybe they're blaming one another. Judah's looking at Reuben. Reuben's looking at Judah. Simeon's on the hook. I mean, they're angry at each other as well. And most of all, he can see that there's fear in their eyes of what's coming next. Oh, no. This is Joseph. He's second in charge of Egypt. He's lord of this country. He's got all the authority he wants, and he knows exactly who we are. Joseph can see it. He can spot, he can smell the fear probably coming from them at this point in time. They don't have anything to say out loud, but he can see it all over them. If, if Joseph at this point in time, if he had wanted to get revenge, this is where it can all start, Right? If he really wanted to turn the screws on these guys, he could have said something like, yeah, that's right. You are guilty. This is all your fault. You thought you'd gotten by with it, but now it's time to face the music, guys. He could have said something like that, couldn't he? But Joseph's desire is not revenge. It's reconciliation. It's not 
their fear, it's their comfort. So rather than let his brothers focus on their guilt in selling him, he focuses on God's glory for letting them do it. And I think probably letting them do it is probably the wrong way to say it. Because it's obvious here in verses 5 through 8 that Joseph is such a strong believer in God's sovereignty that he doesn't even recognize, really recognize, their involvement in getting him to Egypt. Did you see it? Verse 5, Joseph said, God sent me before you. Verse 7, he said the same thing again. God sent me before you. Verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. What is Joseph telling them? He's telling them, God wanted me in Egypt. God put me in Egypt. You were just one of the tools that he used to put me in this spot and in this incredible position with Pharaoh. I mean, to make him like a father to Pharaoh? I don't think Joseph was older than the Pharaoh. Probably not. But a father figure, there's there's trust there, isn't there? There's, There's honor there. There's even an affection. When you talk about a relationship between like, I'm his father and he's like a son to me, there's affection that goes in there as well. I am now in charge of Pharaoh's whole house and this whole nation. God did this to me. God did this for me to carry out this plan to save your lives and the lives of your families as well. So I'm not blaming you for what you did. I'm praising God for what he did. You see the difference in the way Joseph is looking at this? The perception blows my mind. When you think about where he's come from and what he's been through, all that he's had to endure, for him to be able to step back and look at this whole situation, this whole history, this whole timeline, and say, guys, don't worry about it. It wasn't you. It was God. It wasn't bad. It was good. And it was even good for you. I mean, that is... That is about the the greatest worldview I've ever seen or heard before. It's an amazing perspective. And we're going to talk about that more in just a little bit. So we move to Act 3. Act 3 is, well, what's the next step? Joseph has now revealed himself. He's told them why this all happened and how he actually got there. Well, well, what's the next step in the process then? Well, look at verse 9. Joseph says to his brothers, hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near to me, you and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty. For there are still five years of famine. And behold, your eyes and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. So you shall tell my father of all my glory in Egypt and of all that you have seen, and you shall hurry and bring my father down here. What's the next step? Well, let me take you back a ways first. You remember, we've heard God's covenant to Abraham, with Abraham, multiple times, and there have been different parts added to it at different points in time. And you don't need to turn there, but if we would go back to Genesis chapter 15 this morning, we would see a very unique piece of God's covenant with Abraham, and it went something like this. Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, 
for 400 years. Abraham, your descendants are going to be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and it's going to last for 400 years. That was part of God's promise to Abraham, okay? And you have to ask yourself, okay, this is a promise. This is going to happen. How will God pull that off? How would Abraham's descendants all get from Canaan, the land that God promised to them, to that land in which they will be strangers? And why? I mean, God gave them the land of Canaan. That's theirs for for, for eternity. That's theirs. That's where he wanted them to be. So why then would he say, well, you're going to end up, you're going to be in another land for 400 years that's not yours, a land where you will be the strangers. You're not going to be the the owners of that land. You're going to be the guests. Why? Why would God do that? Well, we just heard the answer. We just heard both the how and the why from Joseph, okay? That land where Abraham's descendants would be strangers is what? It's Egypt. That's the land, right? And this is the time and this is the way that God was bringing them there. Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, now Joseph, all the family is going to come join Joseph down in Egypt. This is how it all got started. Now, I don't know if Joseph knew that part of God's covenant. Maybe. Maybe it's been passed down from generation to generation and they had talked about it. But even if Joseph did know about it, there's no indication to me that he's thinking about it here. This is not Joseph trying to fulfill God's covenant himself. That's not what's going on here, okay? This is just Joseph trying to love his family. This is Joseph using his authority to care for his family, to provide for them, to keep them all alive through the next five years that are going to be extremely difficult, more so than the last two. It's going to get worse. He knows that, and he has the ability to take care of all of his family, and that's what Joseph is trying to do here, okay? So he's, t- he's just told them, we just read it, hurry back, tell dad what you just saw and what you just heard. Imagine that. Go tell dad about me. Tell him what I am now. Tell him, tell him the power and the authority that I have down in Egypt. Then bring him, bring all of your families, bring your animals, all of your possessions, and come here and live with me in the best land in Egypt. That, that's, what, that's what Goshen probably was. It's probably that fertile plain over by the Nile River. It's probably the area where the king's own herds grazed all the time. And Joseph is offering that up for all of his family. Go tell dad that. Again, for reassurance, Joseph reminds them that they are seeing and hearing this firsthand. He's not speaking to them through a messenger. He's not somewhere else and just sent a note to them that maybe could have been changed or misunderstood in some way. No, he's not speaking to them through an interpreter. He speaks Egyptian, they translate into Hebrew, and something is lost in the translation. No, that's not going on. You know that. You've just heard me tell you this in Hebrew in your own language, myself. So be reassured by that. And while they might think he would try to deceive them, and punish them for what they had done in the past? Maybe lead those ten astray by making a promise to them and then pulling it back, pulling the rug out from under them at a certain point? He says, not only have you heard me say this, but Benjamin has too. I'm not going to jerk Benjamin around. You know that. He's my full brother. 
I love him. Dad loves him too. I'm not going to lie to Benjamin and try to punish Benjamin. So just know that what I have given you has come in truth. It has come in, in sincerity, and you can trust it. There's real reassurance coming here from Joseph. And it seems like at this point in time, the shock seems to be settling down for them a little bit, and they must have started to believe him and started to relax a little bit, which leads us into Act 4, which I'll just call new relationships. Look at verses 14 and 15. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept on his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Now, I doubt Joseph had ever had that kind of a relationship with those other 10 brothers. I think this is completely new. Even before he was 17 years old and he was back home with them every day, remember what that was like. You had that combination of Jacob's obvious public favoritism, Joseph's the man, Joseph's the golden child. And here, wear this robe so everyone knows exactly how I feel about you. That, that you're up here and the other 10 guys are down here somewhere. Because of the way Jacob treated Joseph, because of a little bit of pride probably that was there in Joseph in being treated that way and getting those special dreams, how did his brothers feel about him? Extreme jealousy. I don't know that you could have been more jealous than, than they were. They resented him so much that they thought about killing him and then sold him off to strangers who were, who were coming by that day out in the field. I doubt Joseph's brothers had ever been happy to see him coming before. I doubt that they had ever hugged and kissed each other and wept over each other in love before this day. But now, here they are, all 11 of them. Those 10 brothers and Joseph, sincerely, openly, without pride, loving each other. No resentment, no fear, no jealousy. Now it's just, I love you and I can't contain it. Back back and forth to each other, Joseph to them, them to Joseph. It's all sincere here as far as we can tell. And what about Benjamin? When Joseph was sold at 17 years old, Benjamin was just a little boy. I can't figure out exactly how old he was at that point in time, but it's possible Benjamin was just a toddler at the point Joseph was sold by his brothers 22 years before this. So they wouldn't have had this kind of relationship either back then. I mean, a 17-year-old boy and a two-, three-, four-year-old kid, it's not like they hugged each other every time they saw each other and spent all their time in the days together. It's not like they had that relationship when Joseph was back home. Maybe Benjamin was so little when Joseph disappeared that he didn't even remember him. I mean, all he knew was the stories his father told about his brother, the other son, the, the golden child, and maybe all he knew was watching his father's grief over this other son, this, this brother that, that had never been around as far as he could remember in his lifetime. But now, here they are, so happy to see each other that they are hugging each other and weeping and kissing each other. They cannot control their love for one another. This is a relationship now that they had never experienced with each other before. Brand new. This is what reconciliation looked like in this family, finally, at this point in time. And you'll notice again, verse 15, right at the end of the verse, did you see that? And after that, 
his brothers talked with him. After that, after Joseph convinced them that he really is glad to see them, and he really isn't going to punish them, he really does love them, he's pouring out his heart to them, okay, we believe you now, so now we talk. Don't you wonder what that conversation sounded like? We don't have details here. We don't know what they said. I mean, was this a, let me tell you about my life for the last 22 years, both them and him. Were there confessions that went on at this point in time? Open, humble, yes, this is what we did out in that field that day. This is, this is what the conversations sound like. This is why we did it and we never should have. And was there just the, these, these open, humble apologies from the 10 brothers to Joseph? And statements of forgiveness from Joseph to them. And then talking about dad back, we don't know. Evidently, we don't need to know the details, just the outcome, reconciliation. Here it is. New relationships that are better than they ever were before. Beautiful. So the family now, the the brothers, the whole family now has this unimaginable offer from their brother. Their brother who just happens to be Second in command over all Egypt. So this is, this is a pretty sweet deal, isn't it? Especially in a time of crippling famine. No other family on earth had this kind of offer during this time of famine. So they've got an unimaginable offer from somebody who can actually come through with the goods, right? But if Joseph, Joseph's offer wasn't enough to convince them, look what happens in Act 5. There's some added support put on top of it. Look at verses 16 through 20. Now, the report of it was heard in Pharaoh's house, saying, Joseph's brothers have come. So it pleased Pharaoh and his servants well. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your animals and depart. Go to the land of Canaan. Bring your father and your households and come to me. I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you will eat the fat of the land. Now you are commanded, do this. Take carts out of the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives. Bring your father and come. Also, do not be concerned about your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. I don't know about you, but I have to keep reminding myself over and over again how strange, how radical this relationship between Pharaoh and Joseph is. You you think back just nine years before this. And what was the relationship between Pharaoh and Joseph nine years earlier? Well, Pharaoh didn't even know Joseph existed at that point in time. Joseph was just an inmate in one of Pharaoh's prisons. And if Pharaoh had known anything about Joseph at that point in time, what would he have heard? This is some Hebrew slave that is accused of attempted rape against the wife of one of your highest officials. That's what he would have known of Joseph. You could not have been any lower and any more despicable than Joseph was nine years before this. And now, what is he? Where is he? How has this changed? Now Pharaoh thinks so highly of him that when he hears about his emotional reunion with his family from Canaan, he makes his own offer to Joseph and Joseph's family. In fact, he commanded, did you see the language in verse 19? You are commanded. 
You don't have the option here, Joseph. I am telling you something that you have to do. Go get your whole family, bring them to Egypt. He gives Joseph wagons to carry everyone and everything back, and he tells them, don't worry about your stuff. Don't be packing clothes and packing furniture and packing dishes and packing tools. Don't worry about all your stuff, because when you get here, I'm going to give you the best of Egypt. Land and possessions. You don't need anything. You're going to get it from me. Can you imagine such an offer? This is how much Pharaoh thinks of Joseph at this point in time, and that is absolutely incredible, folks. Which leads us to our last act, Act 6. Shock and awe. I can't think of any better way to describe this. Verses 21 to 28. Let me read them, and I'll tell you why I said that. Then the sons of Israel did so. Joseph's brothers did what they were told to do. And Joseph gave them carts according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. He gave to all of them, to each man, changes of garments. But to Benjamin, he gave 300 pieces of silver and five changes of garments. And he sent to his father these things, 10 donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and 10 female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and food for his father for the journey. So he sent his brothers away, and they departed. And he said to them, See that you do not become troubled along the way. And I think this is all Joseph speaking to them. Then they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to Jacob their father. And they told him, saying, Joseph is still alive, and he's governor over all the land of Egypt. And Jacob's heart stood still, because he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words which Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts which Joseph had sent to carry him, The spirit of Jacob, their father, revived. Then Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So Joseph did exactly what Pharaoh told him to do. He he sent away his brothers with their sacks loaded down with grain. Once again, that's what they had come for, right? And he sent a bunch of wagons with them. He sent gifts plenty of provisions for the trip back home and then the trip back to Egypt from Canaan. And he sent a whole lot extra for Benjamin, obviously, because he's his one full brother. And just in case his brothers got the thinking on their way home, thinking, wait a second, this is just all too good to be true. Or maybe they would start thinking about what a logistical nightmare this is going to be. Wait a minute we got to gather up everything we own in Canaan and move it all down to Egypt? How, how in the world are we going to be able to pull this off? Or maybe they got to thinking, could this be another setup? I mean, this guy's done this to us twice now. You know, when we left for home, suddenly we found out that things weren't as they seemed. Is he doing this to us again? Joseph is saying to them, You're going to be tempted to think in all of these ways, one of these ways, some of these ways. Don't think in any of those ways. Don't you give in to any doubts or fears or second thoughts along the way. Don't be troubled about this. Don't let your minds or your hearts worry or fear. Don't. Just listen to what I'm telling you. Believe all of it and do what I've told you to do. So they're on their way home. And can you imagine the thoughts and feelings going through their mind and heart as they approached home? They see Jacob's house off in the distance. We're getting close. Are they they giddy with excitement? 
what they get to tell their father now? Are they giddy with excitement or are they scared, worried in some way? What's going to happen when we tell him? Is that going to bring up other questions that we don't want to have to answer? Yeah, all of this stuff probably going through their heads as they march closer and closer to home. And on top of that, what had Jacob been thinking while they were gone? Because remember, he had sent Benjamin with them, and I think probably Jacob had prepared himself never to see Benjamin again. He had given in because they needed food, and everybody's going to die if I don't send Benjamin, so I have to. I don't really have a choice here, but I have to prepare myself that I'm about to lose Benjamin. And Simeon, because Simeon's already down there. I've already lost him. Is that what he's thinking while the boys are gone? And remember, this is not just a one-day-down trip and one day back. They didn't hop on a plane, fly the hour down to the capital of Egypt, and then turn around and fly back. These journeys were weeks, if not months, even in one direction. And they spent time down there with Joseph, too. So Dad, for maybe months, is thinking. He made a decision for a particular reason. They're gone. They haven't come back. And he's thinking what's going through his mind. And now, here they all come back again. Not just the ten, but Simeon is with them, and Benjamin is with them too. And that, in and of itself, should have been enough to surprise and excite him, just just those eleven coming back, because I don't think he expected to get those eleven back when he sent them down there. But he had no way to expect what else they were bringing with him, did he? (laughs) You make sure... You can hear him saying, hear Judah saying the rest of them, make sure he's sitting down when we tell him this. Right? Dad, guess what? Joseph isn't dead after all. He's alive. How could Jacob handle that? I mean, how in the world could this old man handle that news? 22 years ago, he had accepted that his son was dead and gone. They hadn't been out looking for Joseph ever since then. Oh, he's, he's lost. He didn't come home, but maybe he's out there somewhere. I mean, you hear stories like that from, from parents who have a child that disappears and they don't, they don't find out what happened to him. And so they're looking until the day they, they know I don't have to look anymore. That wasn't the case with Jacob. He had been told he's been torn up by a, a wild animal. Here's his robe covered in blood. He must be dead. They haven't been out looking for him. They have accepted Jacob has accepted that his child is dead 22 years ago. They probably had a memorial service for him. Now, he's alive? What are you talking about? That's impossible. How could Jacob process those words? But that's not all. Then his sons say to him, you remember that Egyptian officer we keep telling you about? The the Lord of all the land that made us bring Benjamin back before he would release Simeon back to us? That's Joseph. He's governor over all the land of Egypt. Can you imagine? I have no problem believing the, the description of Jacob's reaction that I just read to you a second ago. His heart stood still. Why wouldn't it? Would you expect anything else to come from Jacob hearing that news? Not just that he's alive, but he's the the Egyptian lord over all the land. How in the world could he deal with that? I mean, the brothers thought coming back without Benjamin was going to give him a heart attack. Well, they come back with Benjamin, 
but he still came close to a heart attack. That, that language, his heart stood still. I know you've got different translations out there. Literally, it means his heart fainted. The idea is slowed down. His heart rate slowed down so much because of the shock of the news. Valerie should be thinking something right now. That's why I have a pacemaker. When, when I get hit with just, just huge news, it's, it's the opposite of the, the, the fight or flight thing. Your heart rate goes up. Mine dies. Mine goes down, and my heart stops beating. So I need a pacemaker. That's what happened to Jacob. The news overwhelmed him so much that his heart rate dropped to the point that in verse 27, it talks about his spirit revived. Literally, it means the breath came back to him. It had affected him so badly that the old man just about died. He, he just about stopped breathing for a while. That's how shocking this all was to him. It was almost too much for him to handle. He couldn't believe it. And he didn't believe it for a while. He couldn't. It was just too much. So they had to tell him everything that had happened. They, they had to tell him everything that Joseph had said. They had to show him all the wagons. And when they took him outside and showed, showed him the wagons, obviously they're not his wagons. The boys didn't go to Egypt with these wagons. And they're, they're obviously superior in quality to any wagons that Jacob owns. They may have had a royal insignia of Pharaoh on the side of them. And after all of that, all of the talk and showing him the wagons, finally Jacob believed. He was convinced. He didn't need any more arguments at that point in time that, that Jacob or Joseph was alive. And surprisingly, he didn't put up a fight to stay in Canaan. Right? Wouldn't you have expected that? It wouldn't have surprised me if Jacob had said, go, go tell Joseph how badly I want to see him, but, but I'm old. I, I can't make that trip. I can't travel that far. And God has given us this land. This is where we're supposed to stay. This is our promised land under God's covenant. Can't he come to me? Go tell him that. That wouldn't have surprised me, right? Even if he did believe Joseph was alive. But his desire to see Joseph before he died was so strong that Jacob started packing right away. I mean, right then, he started packing to leave the land that God had promised to him and to his descendants. And remember Genesis chapter 15? Here you see that part of God's covenant being fulfilled by God. Abraham, your descendants, someday, will go to a land in which they are strangers, a land that is not theirs, and they'll be there for 400 years. And you've just seen how it started. Here's Jacob saying, round up all of Abraham's descendants, we're going to Egypt, the land that is not ours, and we're going to be strangers there. He didn't know how long. He had no idea what was coming after this. But this is God fulfilling his covenant. And this is the incredible narrative up to date, end of Genesis chapter 45. So let me give you now, in conclusion, <clears throat> one statement that I think wraps up everything that we've just looked at. I'll put up here on the screen for you. The sovereignty of God makes all things right. The sovereignty of God makes all things right. Now, think about Joseph's life again with me for just a second. So much of Joseph's life seemed wrong, seems wrong, doesn't it? I mean, here's a guy that was resented, even hated so much by his own brothers that they sold him and were so cold about it 
that they then lied to their dad to convince him that Joseph was dead, that he had been killed by a wild animal. Then Joseph was sold again as a slave, and he was owned by another man for years in a land far from his home. And after serving that man faithfully for years, he was falsely accused by his wife and ended up in prison for years for a crime that he didn't commit. I don't care what moral or ethical or legal standard you want to use to measure all of that against, it's wrong. No matter how you slice it, it's wrong in every way. But now we find him, for all intents and purposes, the second most powerful man in that part of the world at that point in time. And even the man who is the most powerful in the world at that point in time looked up to Joseph. Looked at him kind of like a a son to a father. Trusted him so much with everything in his own house and everything in his own nation. How do you explain that radical change? We don't have to. Joseph did it back in verse 8. You remember? So now, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. That statement by Joseph explains everything that happened to Joseph. It wasn't a series of terrible accidents or unfortunate events. Joseph wasn't the victim of wicked people. God did all of it. Every bit of it. God did it all. God used the wickedness of his brothers to send him to Egypt and have him bought by Potiphar, to use the wickedness of Potiphar's wife to put him in that prison at the same time as the butler, and give him the ability to interpret the butler's dream so the butler would remember Joseph at just the right time in the future so that he could suggest Joseph when no one else was able to interpret that dream that Pharaoh was given by God so that Pharaoh would think so highly of Joseph that he put him second in charge over all of the affairs of the the, the famine, and then also to, to put him in a spot where he can save many people alive, save their lives, including his own family, and then bring all of them, all of Abraham's descendants, to that strange land fulfilling God's own covenant promise. You get it? What seemed so wrong for so long in Joseph's life was right all along. Because it was God sovereignly, providentially controlling every bit of it to accomplish his own perfect plans. And when you read a chapter like this and you hear Joseph himself explain it this way, you should be left with, praise God. Hallelujah. This is why we worship God. One of the many reasons. But this is one of the main reasons we worship God. And it's one of the main reasons we trust God, even when we can't see what he's doing on the surface, even when everything in front of us looks cloudy and I can't see where this is going, I can't figure out where the good is at this point in time, but I know Genesis chapter 45, God's doing this. God is sovereign. God is right. God is always good. I believe in him and I trust him. This is what we learn from Joseph. 
The sovereignty of God makes all things right. But there's even more here, folks. There's even more than that in this truth. Because embracing this truth makes all things right in another way. There is no way we can measure the breach in Joseph's family caused by the sin of those ten brothers. The hurt that they inflicted on Joseph, there's, there's no way I can, I can help you to measure how deep that hurt goes and how wide that chasm is between Joseph and his ten brothers. I mean, selling him to get rid of him and then lying to dad to cover their guilt? Joseph didn't see his family or his father or his little brother for over 20 years. How can anybody get over that? How could Joseph not resent those boys? How could he not hate them? Why wasn't he full of bitterness and distrust? How could he go up and genuinely hug and kiss those guys? Why wouldn't he use his authority to punish them? I would have. Why didn't he? Answer? Because Joseph understood and he believed and he embraced and he rested in the fact that God is sovereign. Joseph knew His brothers weren't the ones ultimately responsible for him being sent away from Canaan to Egypt. God was. God just allowed, God just used their wicked decision to serve God's plan. Joseph understood he wasn't the victim of an evil plot. He was the beneficiary of the righteous, wise, good work of God. For Joseph to be bitter toward his brothers would be to give them too much credit. They weren't ultimately in charge. And for him to be bitter toward his brothers, it would actually be bitterness toward the one who is ultimately in charge. God, right? And it would also to be to slight the incredible mercy of God, what he was doing through Joseph, what he was doing through Potiphar, what he was doing through Potiphar's wife, what he was doing through the butler, what he was doing through Pharaoh. For Joseph to be bitter at his brothers would be to slight all the merciful work God was doing through the decisions and actions of all of those people just so he could save many people alive, especially his own chosen people. Joseph's belief and his faith in the righteous, wise Good sovereignty of God enabled him to love people he should have hated. To forgive what was unforgivable. To pursue reconciliation with men who did not deserve it. And to give so much to people who had taken so much from him. Joseph's appreciation for God's sovereignty generated a beautiful appreciation for those brothers as well. And so I put this last statement up here for you. Embracing the sovereignty of God can make all relationships right. Relationships that seem to be irreparably broken. Relationships that have been broken for decades even. You can't fix it. What what, what happens is too bad. It's gone on too long. Attitudes are are so set in stone now. No one will turn around. Well, guess what? Embracing the sovereignty of God can make all relationships right. Do you see God's sovereignty like Joseph did? That's the big question this morning. 
Does it impact you the way it did Joseph? Your security? Your emotions? Your relationships? Your forgiveness? Your generosity? May we all know God like Joseph did, for God's glory and for our good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this lesson this morning. Thank you for what Joseph teaches us, what you teach us through Joseph. There's a lot of ways I guess you can say this. Thank you for revealing who you are and what you do because of who you are. Thank you for revealing that through Joseph. Thank you for having Moses write this down, even for us thousands of years later, because we we need it desperately. In each of our lives, in the world in which we live today, we need to know and believe that you are sovereign. Because there's so much that goes on that seems just wrong. Seems like it's out of control. It seems like wicked people are in control. And if we don't understand that you are sovereign and how you work being sovereign, we could get lost in all of that. We could be covered up in worry and anxiety and fear. Our relationships with other people could could be just like relationships in the world, nothing special about how we're acting. We're, we're doing the same thing everybody else does. We feel the same way. We speak the same way. If, if, if we don't get your sovereignty, then we will be bitter toward other people, and we will blame other people, or we will carry guilt ourselves. And knowing your sovereignty and embracing it sets all things right. The way we view the world, it sets it right. So that even when we can't see exactly what you're doing at the moment, we know who you are. And we know what you're ultimately doing, and that's enough to give us assurance, security. It's enough to help us rest. It's even enough to give us joy when things are really hard. Because you watched Joseph, and while he was in Potiphar's house as a slave, and while he was in prison unjustly, he didn't seem to be miserable. He didn't seem to be bitter. He didn't seem to be unhappy. It seemed like he, he had joy. Why? Because I think he already understood a certain measure of your sovereignty and your your righteousness and your goodness with your sovereignty in his own life. And now, when he's put so many of the pieces together of the puzzle and realizes that he he is Lord over all Egypt, like a father to Pharaoh, so that he can save a bunch of lives, so that he can save the lives of his own family members, well, now he's just he's just reveling in your sovereignty. We need to be there. You deserve for us to be there. You deserve for us not to look at the world like the world does. You deserve for us to rest in you and to worship you, to trust you, to submit to you, to serve you, to proclaim you. Even when we can't tell everybody exactly what you're doing, we know you. So Father, I pray again that you will use this truth this morning to affect us not just with information, not just with facts for our filing cabinet, but affect us, change the way we think, change the way we feel, change the way we look at the world, change the way we look at other people, even even our enemies, even people who hate us, even people that we've been tempted to hate. Father, give us such a huge perspective on your sovereignty that it affects us. It, It changes us radically. And we'll praise you. We'll glory in you. We will live for you and for your son. And I pray it all in his name. 
Amen.